Section 52 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 12, Part 7. Frau Simon, she was called the mother of the Lazarettos, was a heroine. For weeks she stayed in that neighborhood and bore all privations and dangers. Hundreds were saved by her agency. Day and night she worked, provided, directed. Sometimes she was doing the lowest offices beside the sick beds, sometimes ordering the transport of wounded, sometimes requisitioning necessaries. When she had provided assistance in one place, she hastened without any rest to another. She got a copious supply from Dresden, and conveyed it in spite of all opposing difficulties, to the points when help was needed. She undertook to represent the Patriotic Aid Society on the soil of Bohemia, and made a position for herself there equal to that which Florence Nightingale took in the Crimea. And as to me, Exhausted, comfortless, overpowered by pain and disgust, I had no power to render any help. Even in the church, our first station, I had fallen fainting with fatigue on the steps of that altar of the Virgin, and Dr. Bresser had a good deal of trouble to bring me round again. Thence I tottered a little further by his side, and we got into just such a barn as Frau Simon has depicted. In the church there was at least a large space, in which the poor fellows lay side by side. Here they were crowded upon each other, or in each other's arms, in heaps or rolls. Into the church there had come nurses, probably some sanitary corps on its march through, and these had given some help, though insufficient. But here they were mere castaways, quite undiscovered, a crawling, whining mass of half-putrefied remains of men. Choking disgust laid hold of my throat, the bitterest grief of my breast. I felt as if my heart was breaking in two, and I gave utterance to a resounding shriek. This shriek is the last thing remaining in my memory of that scene. When I came to my senses again, I found myself in a railway carriage in motion. Opposite me sat Dr. Bresser. When he perceived that I had opened my eyes, and was looking about me astonished and questioning, he took my hand. Yes, yes, Lady Martha, he said. This is a second-class carriage. You are not dreaming. You are here in company with a slightly wounded officer and your friend Bresser, and we are on our way to Vienna. So it was. The doctor had brought a detachment of wounded from Horanewas to Konigenhof and from thence another detachment had been given into his charge to transport to Vienna. Me, in my fainting state, fainting in both senses of the word, he had taken with him and was bringing home. I had shown myself to be entirely useless and incapable in those abodes of misery, only a hindrance and a burden. Frau Simon was very glad when Dr. Brusser got me out of the way and I was obliged to allow that it was better so. But Frederick, I had not found him. Thank God that I had not found him, for then all hope was not dead, and if I had been obliged to recognize my beloved husband among those shapes of woe, 
I should have gone mad. Perhaps I should find at home a letter for me from my Frederick. This hope, no, it would be too much to say hope, but the thought of this bare possibility poured balm into my wounded soul. Yes, wounded. I felt my inmost soul wounded. The gigantic woe which I had seen had cut so deep into my own heart that I felt as if it would never be healed again completely. Even if I were to find my Frederick again, even if a long future of brilliancy and love were granted me, could I ever forget that so many others of my poor human brothers and sisters had had to bear such unspeakable misery, and must go on bearing it, till they come to see that this misery is no fatality, but a crime. I slept almost the whole way. Dr. Bresser had given me a slight narcotic, so that a longer and sounder sleep might to some extent calm my nerves, which had been so shattered by the occurrences at Horonawas. When we arrived at the Vienna station, my father was already there to take me away. Dr. Bresser, who thought of everything, had telegraphed to Kurumitz. It was not possible for him himself to see me there, for he had his wounded to see into the hospital, and wished then to return to Bohemia without delay. My father embraced me in silence, and I also did not find a word to say. Then he turned to Dr. Bresser. How can I thank you? If you had not taken this little crazy thing under your protection— but the doctor pressed our hands hastily. I must go, he said. I have duty to do. May you get home safely. The young lady wants forbearance, your excellency. She has had a terrible shaking. No reproaches, no questioning. Get her quickly to bed. Orange flower water. Rest. Goodbye. And he was gone. My father put my arm in his and led me through the crowd to the exit. There again, a long row of ambulance wagons were standing. We had to go some distance on foot till we could get to the place where our carriage was waiting. The question, has any news of Frederick come during this while, rose several times to my lips, but I could not find courage to give voice to it. At last, when we had driven some distance, while my father kept silence all the way, I brought it out. Not up to yesterday, was the reply. It is possible that we may find news today. It was, of course, yesterday, immediately after the receipt of the telegram, that I left for the city. Oh, what a fright you have given us, you silly creature, to go to the battlefields where you might meet the most cruel enemies, for these folks are just like savages. They are perfectly intoxicated with the victories of their needle rifle and all. They are no disciplined soldiers, these landwehr fellows. From such men you may be sure of the worst outrages, and you, a lady, to run into the midst of them, you— However, the doctor just now ordered me not to scold you. How is my son, Rudolf? He is crying and moaning about you, seeking you all over the house, will not believe that you could have gone away without giving him a parting kiss. And do not you ask after the rest, Lily, Rosa, Otto, Aunt Mary? You seem to me altogether so indifferent. How are they all? Has Conrad written? They are all well. A letter arrived yesterday from Conrad. Nothing has happened to him. Lily is happy. You will see that good news will very soon arrive about Tilling, too. Unfortunately, there is nothing good to be hoped in a political point of view. 
you have surely heard of the great calamity. Which, in the present state of things, I have seen nothing but great calamities. I mean Venice, our beautiful Venice, given away, made a present of to that intriguer Louis Napoleon, and that after such a brilliant victory as we won at Costosa. Instead of getting back our Lombardy, to give up our Venice as well. It is true that by this means we get free from our enemies in the south, have Louis Napoleon too on our side, and can now with our whole force take our revenge for Sadawa, chase the Prussians out of our country, follow them up, and gain Cilicia for ourselves. Benedek has committed great mistakes, but now the chief command will be put into the hand of the glorious commander of the army of the south. But you make no reply. Well, then, I will follow Bresser's prescription and give you repose. After a drive of two hours, we arrived at Grumitz. As our carriage drove into the court of the chateau, my sisters ran out to meet me. Martha! Martha! Both of them shouted from a distance. He is there! And again, at the carriage door. He is there! Who? Frederick, your husband. Yes, so it was. It was the day before, late in the evening, that Frederick had been brought with a consignment of wounded from Bohemia to Vienna, and from thence here. He had received a bullet in his leg, a wound which rendered him for the moment unfit for service and in need of nursing, but was entirely free from danger. But joy is also hard to bear. The news then shouted to me by my sisters, so entirely without preparation, that Frederick was there, had just the same effect as the terror of the past days. It deprived me of consciousness. They were obliged to carry me from the carriage into the chateau and put me to bed. Here, whether from the after-effect of the narcotic or the violence of the shock of joy, I spent several hours in unconsciousness, sometimes slumbering, sometimes delirious. When I came to myself and found myself in my own bed, I believed myself to have awoke from a dreadful dream and thought I had never left Grimitz. Bresser's letter, my resolution to start for Bohemia, my experiences there, the homeward journey, the news of Frederick's return home. All was a dream. I looked up. My femme de chambre was standing at the foot of the bed. Is my bath ready? I asked. I want to get up. Now Aunt Mary rushed forward out of a corner of the room. Oh, Martha, poor dear, are you at last awake and restored to your senses? God be praised. Yes, yes, get up and take your bath. That will do you good, when one is covered as you are with the dust of the roads and railways. Dust from railways? What do you mean? Quick, get up. Nettie, get everything ready. Frederick is almost dying with impatience to see you. Frederick. My Frederick. How often had I during these last days called out this name, and with what pain? But now it was a cry of joy, for now I had comprehended. It was no dream. I had been away and come back again, and was to see my husband. A quarter of an hour afterwards I went into his room, alone. I requested that no one should go with me. No third person should be present at our meeting. 
Frederick! Martha! I rushed to the couch on which he lay and sobbed on his bosom. End of section 52 Recording by Cassiopeia Sparks